When I talk to property investors, they often tell me using debt is a key advantage over other asset classes. In the stock market, using debt is often called gearing. The new BetaShares Wealth Builder Funds, ASX ticker symbols G200 and GHHF, offer moderate gearing across Australian and global shares for investors who are comfortable with the higher risks associated with gearing their investments. You can discover how they work by visiting betashares.com.au. Please don't forget that gearing magnifies gains and losses, so read the relevant PDS and TMD on the website and consider if the fund is right for you. BetaShares Capital Limited is the issuer. Is there a Spotify wrapped for investing? If you want to invest in shares or ETFs, our friends at Perla are more than one step ahead of the curve. On average, people who use Perla invest $1,750 every month. That's what we want to see, proper dollar cost averaging. With automated investing tools making your life simple, Perla investors have well and truly mastered the art of investing small bits lots of times. So if you're ready to start growing your net worth in 2024, follow the link in your Spotify or Apple podcast player right now to discover how you can get started today. Welcome to the Australian Finance Podcast. I'm Kate Campbell. And I'm Owen Rask. And we're here to give you the tools and knowledge to invest both your time and money better. If you're new, feel free to jump in with our Starter Pack series that aired in early 2022 or our Shares or ETF mini series. We've got plenty to share with you in today's episode, but if you want to catch us on socials, head to Rask Australia on Insta and Twitter. I'm also found at Kate Campbell AUS on Insta. And I'm Owen Rask AU on Insta. Just beware of the fake accounts. We'll never DM you about trading strategies or crypto. And if it sounds a bit weird, it's probably not us. And just one final heads up before we get into the show. This podcast contains general financial information only. Kate Campbell, welcome to this episode of the Australian Finance Podcast. It is wonderful to be back on for another Q&A episode with yes. Drew. Drew Meredith, it's how good, are you going? Good to be back. Financial advisor, yeah. extraordinary. Very well. Financial advisor. Yeah. AFSL, don't know the number off the top of my head, but- 383169. Uh, <laughs> Was it 383169? Yeah, I know my ABN too, my business ABN at least. Okay. Well, so, if you want to search Drew up right now on the register, <laughs> the <laughs> ASIC one. <laughs> of course. I don't know my advisor number, I keep forgetting that one. True. Drew. But you can actually look up every financial advisor on the Money Smart website. Yeah. So yeah. if we went to Money Smart right now, I could type that number in. Yeah, Did just you go wait, finance. Finance, yeah, As because well. this is a fancy <laughs> side of the. Drew and I, for those of you that don't know, Drew and I do host the weekly two cent show on the Australian Investors Podcast, where we just answer questions uh, and do a bunch of other stuff. Uh, but today, mate, we've got some questions that have come through from the community. If you do want to send a question to us, it's really important. That uh, you send it in via the link in your podcast player. Sometimes we get questions via Twitter, Instagram, email. It's just too hard for us to keep up. So please, if you do want your question answered, follow the link in your show notes in your podcast player and uh, and click the one that says ask a question. Select the Australian Finance Podcast. And uh, hopefully we can get Drew back next time to answer your question. You are two of the busiest people I know, or it seems to be. Coming from the guy yeah. that has like five businesses. <laughs> It's how you how you how you look and how you how you act just seems busy all the time. We are very busy. Yeah. yeah. Always filming even when you're uh even when you're just having a quiet coffee. <laughs> that was Kate. <laughs> Both of you. Oh yeah. Well we do have coffee beans in front of us here today. So Kate, maybe we'll hand the reins over to you because otherwise Drew and I will completely derail this podcast. <laughs> As usual. Um over to you. 
You guys are menaces. Owen, you've got to do a bonus disclaimer. Oh, yes, I do have to do a bonus disclaimer. So because we are answering questions today, it's really important that you remember that we do not know your financial situation. Some of the questions you send us uh, include a long paragraph. And typically what we do is we like don't read that part out or we just summarize that bit because we want you to remember that we don't know your circumstances. You will need to see a financial advisor like say Drew here or like one that you find on the Money Smart website. You will find a link in the, the show notes to uh, Waddle Partners Financial Planning as well. There's a link there. But um, go and see them because they'll give you that personalized advice. If we do answer the question, it's strictly general in nature. Uh, and we just try and take like the meat of your question and answer it more broadly. Uh, and that's really important. If you want to find out more, please do uh, refer to our financial services guide on the RASC website. Final thing, Kate, one final thing. When you send your question in, please give us a funny name because that adds an extra layer to remind everyone that we're here and it's kind of like educational only. Um, not too funny. Not too funny. Not there is a limit. That's it. Okay. okay. All right. So buy, hold, sell. We have a few different <laughs> starting suggestions off <laughs> starting off strong. So unlike the financial TV shows where you actually tell a person a random list of companies and they just have to make a guess on the spot, mm-hmm. I've got a few suggestions. One from a listener. Yeah. The first one is tomato sauce in the fridge. The second one is Vegemite on toast. And the third one is chai lattes. And you can only buy one. Hold one and sell one. Oh, so Ooh, out of the challenge. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. Wow. I'm, I'm selling tomato sauce in I'm, the fridge. I'm selling chai lattes. Really? And Have you tried one? I've tried one, but I'm an adult, so oh. I drink full lattes. <laughs> Have you tried them made with the leaves? I don't know. I think they're just use a cruddy powder. Yeah, but no. of the three, so I drink one, but of the three- Okay. It's selling tomato sauce in the fridge. Who, who has cold tomato sauce? Me. My, my I put children, tomato sauce in the fridge. I have two children. I think they su- su- like sustain on basically tomato sauce and white type of foods, like chips and potato oil. <laughs> white time. bread. Yeah, tomato sauce much. really goes with everything. And it's mainly tomato sauce, but unless the food's piping hot, how do you have cold tomato sauce? It's a great contrast. Well, we've got two against one here. Monique's just off it. Monique, would you have in the fridge? In the fridge. In oh, the fridge. Okay. Sauce or ketchup? Isn't it the same thing? They're no, very, very different. What's the difference? What's the difference? I thought the American oh, whoa, was just... Whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> there's a different label for the American version of tomato it's sauce. It's all Heinz, isn't it? No, there's a very different thing between ketchup and sauce. Ketchup has like, Is this like one of those left-handed screw- Is this like one of those left-handed screwdriver things? Yeah. Uh, no, 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 not at all. It's the reason it's got a different name. One comes from Germany, one comes from Germany. <laughs> <laughs> what? All right. All right. Vegemite on toast, Drew. That's a buy. That's the main buy for me. Love Vegemite on toast. Yep. Sourdough, and- crunchy... I'll go hold. I would buy it, but I'd add. Avocado. The only reason it would go to a strong buy is if it had avocado as well. Yeah. All right, and that means you're holding a chai latte, Drew. I've actually never tried one, so it's probably the best place to start. You I ask me. I tried one. <laughs> <laughs> That's what good interviewers do, don't they? All right, I'm definitely buying tomato sauce in the fridge. I would be holding a chai latte and selling Vegemite on toast. Oh, really? Yeah. I'm Australian, mate. Vegemite on toast is like the thing that we're known for. That and shrimp on the barbie. And I'm putting tomato sauce on everything. And four and 20 pies. Okay, moving on. All right, so moving on to ETFs. So this question is from ETF and Good. So Mm -hmm. reasonable name. Yep. All right, how is the ASX 200 constructed? I hear lots about the index of the best 200 companies, but I don't understand what metric is used to rank the companies. Drew, do you want to kick us off? (laughs) Would love to. I mean, every... So 
basically what you see on the news every night is the ASX 200, and it's a measure of how the largest, is the simplest way to think about it, or is it the only way to think about it, the largest companies in Australia have moved or performed on any given day. Mm. Uh, and there's a lot of confusion that everyone puts says the best companies when it's not really really appropriate, whether that's in the media or on you know socials. Um, it's very much just the most simple measure of a company, which is how much it's worth. So market capitalization, uh, which I think you guys would have explained before, which is the number of shares times the value of those shares. So whatever the value is worth on any given day on the ASX times the number of shares on issue mm -hmm. is the valuation of a company. And then basically the size of that, the, the ASX is the 200 largest companies and the weightings are determined by how big that company is. And the these way, are just companies listed on the Australian Yes. Stock exchange. Exactly. And for context, there's a, I think it's still about, is it 2,000 companies listed mm -hmm. on the ASX in total? So this is just the, the top 200. And it goes from being, you know, I think BHP might be a $180 billion company. Mm -hmm. Down to the bottom of the ASX 200, there's a company probably worth $500 million. So massive difference. And that explains why the, the index is dominated by BHP. I think it's over 10% of the index now uh, because it's the largest company, one of the largest, not the largest companies in the world, but one of the biggest mining companies in the world. Mm. Yeah, and market cap of a company changes on a second-by-second -second basis depending on what price people are prepared to buy and sell the company for. Exactly. Yep. And it, uh, so the, the allocations within the ASX 200 between those stocks will change regularly as the values change, but the, the constituents, so that individual 200 companies is only updated every quarter or so subject to some some rules every quarter not quarter or so yep uh so I like if, it. if companies are getting smaller or struggling or some go bankrupt in the 200 as well they'll be removed and replaced with others um i mean there's been a lot of talk about how you can game or play the the introduction and uh and exclusion of companies in the asx 200 but it's so well uh kind of rehearsed and structured by the the i think standard pause who run the index that a lot of that arbitrage is removed. Yeah. So to clarify, what would cause a company to leave or enter the ASX 200? Usually, so companies are generally valued on their profit or their revenue and earnings. So generally, if a company uh, was worth $600 million, so they had $100 million in profit, and they, so they were selling electronics and the sales fell significantly, the value of that company naturally would fall in most cases. Mm -hmm. And once they fall beyond, I guess, the next largest company, uh, they'd essentially be replaced. Mm. Another one is um, takeovers. Yeah. So if a company gets acquired, um, it obviously disappears. Yeah. And another company fills its spot. And delistings. Yep. So when a company no longer chooses to be listed on the ASX, mm -hmm. they might list on another exchange or they might uh, become unlisted. One, one extra thing that happens with the ASX 200 is that there is an extra measure that they put in there. Um, so it's the market cap, which Drew referred to as like the biggest companies get the weightings. Yeah. But there's another one in there, whereas if, if a company, say, for example, has its shares in Australia and overseas, it has to have a certain percentage in Australia. And if it doesn't, it won't be included, even if it is big. So, for example, zero wasn't included in it for a while because it was originally from New Zealand and it had a lot of its shares over there. But then they said, okay... See you later, New Zealand. Sorry, guys. And um, <laughs> then when they put all the shares in Australia, it was included. 
Hmm. There's some yeah. liquidity constraints at the bottom end as well. So if it's a company that would fit into the ASX 200 but has significant, like there's not a lot of trading in its shares or a lot of it's held by one person, it'll struggle to get into yeah. the ASX 200. So it's hmm. not not a qualitative. So they're not making an assessment whether that's a good company. They're just using fixed rules. That's probably the important thing here that it's there's no qualitative to it. It's all about fixed rules that are already in place that determine what's in the index. So yeah. top 200, biggest company gets the biggest weight. Yeah, and it's always important when you're buying an ETF to actually look at what the index is, and that's what you can see on the ETF provider's website because if you're buying something a little bit fancier or thematic, they might have their own custom index and there might be set rules for that. So you want to see what that is and understand that. Yeah, and there's a lot of index providers. So it starts at S&P, Standard & Poor's, which does a lot of data. There's groups like MSCI, so Morgan Stanley, they used to be called. There's Bloomberg as their own. And then one of the more popular ones with ETFs is Solactive. So mm. there's basically companies that provide indexes that can then be tracked by ETFs. I think one of the interesting things in Australia is, and it's not just common in Australia, how overweight the index is to certain sectors. So yeah. they're- True. <laughs> no, well, when you look at your the ASX 200 index, when BHP is about 10%. Yeah. So meaning that it has a lot of exposure. Yeah, maybe it's not overweight, but it's just <laughs> tilted towards it. Like if you think, you, you think if you buy in the ASX 200 alone, you'd have a diversified, you know, representation of the economy. But as you saw in the pre in the in COVID and different sell-offs, mm. the share market is not a reflection of the broader economy. Mm. It's the in Australia, 25% of the ASX 200 is invested into financials, and most of that is in the top four banks. Yeah. So if you think if you're building a portfolio alone, you wouldn't think that. 25%, one quarter of your portfolio in banks would be diversified enough. Mm. And then 17% in materials. Yeah. Like I'm, I'm, and iron ore I'm looking and at the A200, the beta shares ASX200 ETF right now, and 10.6% is in BHP. Second highest position is Commonwealth Bank with 7.8%. Yeah. So if, you're, if you've got $100 in the A200 ETF, there's quite a high weighting to BHP and Commonwealth Bank. And then if you go down the list of top 10, you've got another four banks and a few other companies in there. Yeah, like it's a Telstra, lot of concentration. Your favourite. Yeah, my favourite. I'm still going all right too. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's still higher than when, I, when I said it. Uh, but uh, that's like a part of what we do in financial advice is understanding what, you know, whether that's diversified and, and you know, portfolios aren't one or two holdings. That's why we, we have a lot of tools where we'll know exactly what each ETF or which fund is holding and making sure the ones that we're adding next to it aren't just doubling down on banks and financial banks and materials that you already have. So it's kind of that importance of taking a high level uh, view of portfolio or when you and where your risks are when you're building portfolios for the, for the long term. Awesome. Okay. Next question from Adele uh, writes that they're saving for a house deposit next year. They really want to save $85,000. Currently, they're putting the money in a savings account. Any information on the best way to invest this, bearing in mind they're probably going to need the money next year. I mean, don't do pretty- it. <laughs> <laughs> we're so, so simple. I kind of put a rule in it. I don't think it's a fixed rule that we have. But basically, if you're saving for a deposit, you, in our view, you shouldn't do anything that involves additional risk that isn't government guaranteed. So government guaranteed is essentially any deposit up to $250,000 with a, in a high interest in, savings account. Yeah, exactly. It could be, you know, the Rabos, the INGs, the I think most credit unions, as long as they're an authorized deposit take institution, you know, and and uh, governed by APRA or just by the government in general, uh, 
that's I think that's where you, where you want to be. And that, the reason for that is if you were saving a deposit, that's a finite and it's a fixed expense that you need at a certain point in time. So anything above cash or term deposits is taking risk and the risk that you aren't able to make that deposit when you want to. So if it's, a sh- if it's I said broadly, if it's under five years, you wouldn't even think about investing into share markets that if you needed that capital in under five years. And then if it's under less, less than three, you probably wouldn't go further than term deposits. So there's mm. other investments you could consider between the two. Um, yeah, and I think because... Um, the difficulty of getting into the property market and the, the fact that deposits have been growing in size, you need more money to get in. A lot of people have been going, well, should I do something else with my money? And I think yeah. the risk is that you do something that might not align with your goals, especially yeah. if you need that money in the next 12 months for the property. You might feel, I want to get there quicker, and you might do something that means you don't actually get there that much quicker. Mm. And we know investing is a long-term play. Like yeah. you're looking for long-term compounding. I know we've had questions on the other podcast in the past, which is makes the assumption that the market goes up 10% every year because the average over the long term is 10%, but it's not. And we've seen that. I think I, sh- I pulled out the last three years, it was like the market was down negative 17%. So imagine if you were investing your, say it was $100,000 waiting for your deposit next year, well, you end up with $83,000 and you can't make the deposit you want to. Mm-hmm. That's why you want to be careful aligning what your objective is with what where you put in the capital and there's so many bank accounts now that offer more than four percent with that with government guaranteed it's kind of a a straightforward option yeah no brainer yeah and i think savers are being rewarded and understanding your time frame is great Mm -hmm. because you know you potentially want the money next year so it makes it quite clear that you probably don't want to be investing at this point in time one issue we see is people not setting a time frame on it so you say you're saving for a deposit but then you won't buy the house yeah. and you'll keep thinking about buying the house. And it's naturally, because it's such an emotional decision, people just will let it drag on and that'll stop mm. them from investing, which you probably talk about all the time. So is there a point where you just go, no, nah, not not looking at the house anymore. I want to start putting that towards another compounding or, or returning asset. And that's when you th- consider shares or ETFs or something else. Yeah. And I think we've got an episode, it might be out already or coming out soon on the Australian Property Podcast talking about the first home buyer's journey and saving up a deposit. So keep yep. an eye out for that. And I think there's one coming up on the finance podcast soon about saving a deposit. Yes, so there there'll be some tips and tricks there for you. All right. <clears throat> Next question, you think? Yes, it comes from Doug, <laughs> Doug Bollinger Band, which is um, a play on a few things. Doug Bollinger, Kate, who uh, I'm just showing on the screen right here. Cricketer. Cricketer. Yeah. Right. Oh, okay. Yeah, and uh, I would have totally he's, known uh, that. He's playing for the Chennai Super Kings at the moment, age forty-one years old, according to Wikipedia. Is he the one that got like four for eight? <sighs> May have been. I don't know no, what that means, but I'm, I'll take it. <laughs> um, so, and the other thing is, a Bollinger band is—it's not a band like, say, a gig. It's um, is it over, oversold, undersold. Yeah, it's a it's a technical analysis term. So this is a real great play on words. We've got a cricketer mixed with some sort of finance term. Great. Great job. <laughs> you, type, you, oh, you want me to ask the question now? <laughs> the question is, what are the pros and cons of an investment bond compared to making extra super contributions, which is something we did discuss on last month's Q&A? Yeah. This is quite a technical question. So um, I'll just maybe preface it and then you can uh, add the, the, the Yeah, I think if you give us, tell us what bonds are, tell us what investment bonds are and tell us what super is. Okay. And so we can get a full picture here. Okay. I'll just quickly tell you that an investment bond is not what people think of when they think of bond. So yeah. when we have a bond in a portfolio, that's like a government guaranteed 
um, it's a thing. loan to the government. It's a loan to the government. And you get them through your an ETF or you get them through a managed fund and financial advisors use them to build portfolios. Superannuation, most of us know, it's like it goes, it's your money, but it's not held in your like legal name. You're the beneficial owner, but the legal name is like Australian Super or whoever you're with. But the third thing is an investment bond. These were around before superannuation and they were invented in a very similar way to super to create a separate tax environment like where you can put money in and it's taxed separately to your personal name and they, they actually they actually used to take their name insurance bond is the correct name uh, because it was c- created under the insurance legislation so where you could have like an insurance company and it would hold money and invest it lawyers thought well we could take that concept and turn it into something that anyone can invest in and you can have a pool of money that's separately taxed. So that's the geeky part of it all. So just in summary, we've got bonds, which are things that go to the government and you get a percentage back, you put them in your portfolio. Then we've got super, which is separate uh, from your name, but it's your money and you get it when you retire. And then an investment bond is something that you can start and you can invest in right now. But there's rules. There are so many rules, which Drew loves the technical Drew, stuff. So tell us the Drew, high level rules of investment bonds. Investment bonds that way. We haven't used them a lot in our business, but they're suited to a certain kind of group of people. I think the biggest difference between investment bonds and super is that you can actually break an investment bond if you if you want to. Yeah. Yep. Not if you need to, if you want to. Whereas superannuation, once you're contributing, you can't access it until basically 60 years yeah, of age now. it's a very tight uh, set of restrictions there. Yeah, so that would be the biggest difference. And then, I mean, investment bonds are essentially, they're, they're both wrappers. So investment yep. bond is a wrapper that is a tax-paid entity. So they're popular for people who are on, say, uh, the top marginal tax rate above 40%, or in this case, any if you're paying marginal tax above 30%, uh, they become incredibly popular because the tax rate within an investment bond is that 30% company tax rate every year. Uh, so it allows people to remove taxable income from their own name and pay that via this entity. But at the same time, the biggest benefit is that once you've invested in them for 10 years, subject to some kind of simple-ish rules, the entire capital gains is received tax-free. Yes. The entire value of the bond at the end of that period is received tax-free. And you invest into other assets within or investment options within the investment bonds or insurance bonds. So an example will help here. I think if you say you're 33 and you're, you know for the next 10 years, you're going to earn a lot of money because you've got a good career, you're on the way up, happy days, right? You will be taxed if you get to the highest tax rate, like 45% or whatever it is. So a lot of your money over the next 10 years is going to disappear through tax. So what's one strategy you could do? Well, you think, okay, I'm still going to be taxed on my income, but maybe I can invest somewhere and the earnings that I make from my investments won't go under my name. So you would go to one of these companies that offers an insurance or investment bond, and you would make regular contributions to that investment bond. Now, when that investment bond ticks over one year, it will do its own tax. So you don't have to worry about that. It's like, that's managed, right? The rule that Drew was talking about is this really interesting rule that after 10 years, the money that's in there can be sold, like it can be tax-free basically, and you can do whatever you want, happy days, right? A lot of people just keep them going, mm. but there is a, there are quite a few t- technical rules around this. One of them is that if, say, for example, you put $10,000 in and the next year you go and put $20,000 into the same bond, your 10 years- you break that rule. Starts again. Starts it's again. 125% It's 125% rule. So you want to get advice around this. And so a lot of people make that mistake is they put too much in. 
and it breaks it. But a lot of people use these, for example, if they want to build wealth for their kids. Or um, grandchildren. And they don't want to pay tax on it themselves. Yes, And exactly. they don't want to put in their children's name because children are taxed at significantly higher tax rates. And I would say, Drew, correct me if I'm wrong, but maybe one of the reasons you don't deal with a lot of these now is because since the 90s we've had super. Yeah. And that was a better option. But prior, prior mm. to that, there would have been more people looking at these types of things. Yeah. Yeah, I think every second client in the probably the late 2000s came in with some sort of investment mm. bond or insurance bond. Yeah. And now um, that the government is, as we know, making more changes to super, maybe these things become more popular once again. But there is... I always remember, because I used to research these things back in the day. It was a great time. I was at life of the party. <laughs> um, Did you talk about them at Still parties? Are. <laughs> so, espresso martini. Who wants to know about insurance bonds? Um, no, but what what I think is a really important thing for people to consider is this might be a strategy, but it definitely shouldn't be the strategy. And let me explain why. It's because if so many people start to use these things, the government's going to be like, there's too many people using insurance bonds to dodge tax. Yeah. We're going to change the rules. <laughs> it's a bit of a pessimist over here, isn't it? No, but like, so one of the things Anything that people- that's popular will tax. But when you think about it, right? Like, if you look at the, the genesis of like, well, the, the way the rules work is that every loophole is getting closed, slowly getting closed or bent. Like the $3,000 limit on super before you're taxed, like that's obviously caught a lot of people off guard. And people that had, like we talked to someone last week, wonderful for them, have $40 million in super. Right. What? Retired. Right. Forty-one. What? Did you say forty-one million? I think they had forty million. Oh yeah. It's okay. close enough. That's still a lot of money, Owen. Yeah, it is. Right. That's a lot of money to have in super. So their number one and probably their only retirement strategy was super. Right. Now imagine if they didn't do that. Imagine if they had a private investment company that like they set up a company to do their investing for them, or imagine if they had a family trust, or imagine some other option. Mm. They would be in a completely different scenario to where they are right now, where they're panicked about the government changes. And so if you thought about investment money, oh, that's 10-year rule, sounds pretty cool. I'm just going to put all my money in there. Well, what happens if the rules change? So don't go into something like this thinking that's the only thing. Don't put all your eggs in one basket. What? Yep, that's in multiple ways. Well, I think I the good piece of advice is that. don't let tax rule your investment decisions. Yeah, and the worst investments mm. we've seen in 20 years in the industry have all been tax-driven. Yeah, yeah, I've talked yeah. to a few people who held on to an investment that was a fairly poor investment because they wanted to get the capital gain tax reduction by holding it for 12 months, and it just kept going down and down and down. Yeah, yeah. Um, all right. We let the what was it? We let the tax tail wag the dog. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, where well, you see people with their share Anything. portfolios, and yeah. they think can't sell it now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, so. Well. I guess what what are we saying about investment bonds? You don't need to overcomplicate your life. If you're considering this, you've got to make sure you read all the rules carefully and it's probably a product you want to use in conjunction with an advisor. Yes. A broader strategy and, and always watch out for fees. Yeah, like they're very expensive. Remove, make sure you're not adding additional complexity where yeah. you don't need to. Typically, in my research, typically the only people that truly benefit from them are high income earners, unless you're getting legal advice. All right. Next question from BG. BG, okay. Who is talking about the IOZ ETF distribution? And so, we, do we have a prop? Because we, we are filming we today. We have a prop. We've got from a mystery investor who owns IOZ. <laughs> we do have a, a, a bit of a, a bit of a concern. A here tax that, uh, statement. Kate, Kate picked up. Yep. <clears throat> Kate has already scrutinised said document. Um, yeah. But we will have a snippet of this. You will be able to find it in. Uh, in the podcast player, it shows you the tax document, Kate, that you would receive if you owned an ETF like IOZ. Yes, yeah, so this is the the annual tax statement for yeah. that 
ETFs distributions they've made four times during the year. So the question was, like, in the statement, they mentioned there was a, a capital gains element. Not really sure what this is. Tried looking online, couldn't find anything that made sense. Can we help explain it? So I thought we'd just go through the, the IOZ distribution statement, have a look at anything that stands out to you, Drew. Uh, I was provided this by a friend. So there we yeah. go. Um, just quickly, if you don't know what we're talking about, if you own an ETF between July and August every year, you will receive a piece of paper for each ETF and it will break down the types of income that you earned through owning that ETF and you give this to your accountant. That's yep. as simple as it is. But we're just looking at one and trying to make sense of it. I mean, the first thing, as we pointed out, or we discussed beforehand, is that the TFN hasn't been quoted on this one. So that's always- Tax file yeah, number. Yeah. Yeah. So Not at the top of the- a pretty big no-no. Yeah. <laughs> that is isn't all bad though. So if you don't quote your tax file number, if your broker forgets to do it, you might, you'll see withholding tax deducted from your distribution. But when you lodge a tax return, you'll get that withholding tax back. Yeah. Yep. It's uh, just in the tax office pocket for a bit longer. So this is a common mistake that I've made, many people make, is that when you buy an ETF or a share- your tax file number is not passed by your broker across to the share registry. So that's like computer share or link market services. Yeah. They don't always do it and it's really on your your shoulders to go and make sure it's all updated in computer share and link market services. Yeah. So if you get that those, those wads of paper when you would buy something, this is the, t the type of paper we're talking about. Yeah. Because in early days, it might just be $7 of withholding tax. But if you have thousands of dollars of distribution, maybe one day, um, there could be quite substantial amount of withholding tax that the ATO yeah, gets yeah. to keep on for keep holding. And it happens longer. in every entity, particularly. So we've seen within superannuation funds or SMSFs, it forgetting to be done, and that's mm. refundable. Yeah, franken credits that they're essentially missing out on until they're or or dollars in your bank account at the same time. Are you pre franken credit baby? Yep. Okay. <laughs> Thanks just, for reminding me. Just checking. <laughs> I'm also country road here is calling. Average for an endorsement. <laughs> All right. So, Drew, can you explain some of the key components of our IOZ distribution statement? Yeah, I think the big one to consider, remember, is on the first line, which says it's a managed investment trust. So, this is an ETF is a wrapper through which you have the entitlement to the shares uh, or whatever other assets, but generally it's shares underneath it. So, you're entitled to all the income and dividends that are paid from all those shares, but you're also responsible for the capital gains that are occurring uh, uh, or being realized during the year and capital losses. You obviously don't pay tax on them. Um, and that's probably where the first part of this discussion comes in about rebalancing. So you yes, think maybe- Yes, that ties to what we spoke about earlier with exactly. the ASX 200 index. It's getting rebalanced each quarter. Yeah. And which... to rebalance. Yeah, yeah. You have to be better. You have to sell. So if uh, different stocks have performed differently, you'll, the, the index will have to sell some of- uh, it could be BHP or or the ETF will have to sell some of BHP to get it back mm. in line with what the benchmark is, uh, with what the ASX 200 is doing. And similarly, if a company's left it or a company's increased, so you know a company's growing in size, the ETF has to continue to buy more yeah. of that company at the same time. And that's why there there's it's not a tax paid entity like an investment bond. Basically, any capital gains or income from an ETF just gets paid directly to you and it's taxable in your own name. And yeah. this so they pass that capital gains through to you. Because it can yeah. it seem a bit confusing because we usually talk about incurring capital gains if we buy something and sell it for mm. more and then we have to declare that in our tax return. But I might hold the IOZ ETF. I might not sell it, but I still get passed through capital gains from inside that ETF. And then if you sold the, the ETF during the year at a, at a gain as well, you'd pay capital gains on that. Huh? You'd have to record that yeah. in your in your tax return as well. So two types of capital gains. One occurs inside the fund yep. and one occurs when you buy or sell. 
Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So that's why I think it can be a bit confusing when you look at these statements because there's a lot of different numbers on there. And one of the things that people get wrong is they think in a really when a, the stock market's going up, what we call a bull market, um, when it goes up, it what the ETFs are doing is they're making a profit. Those ETFs are actually buying and selling at higher and higher rates, right? So if you think about it, on July 1st, when this distribution statement is created, people will get in theory, some of that capital gain and some of the income that's been accrued inside of the ETF. But what that means is, and the Reddit community go hysterical every year on, around July 1st, is their share price of their ETF falls dramatically. And they yeah. think, oh my Lord, it has fallen. right? And then someone comes along and says, no, 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 you're going to get this, but you're going to get it when you get your tax distribution. Yeah. So the, the capital gains that are embedded inside of it adjusts and you get this statement instead. So you receive the income and then you can just reinvest that. Yeah. And just a, a, shy, a sign of literacy, I think, in, in financial liter literacy. So we have a lot of clients in their 60s that have been clients for quite a while and their managed funds fall by 10% at the end of the year, same as an ETF. And a lot still ask why they perform so poorly. Yeah. And it's because there's uh, a bit of a delay before they get the distribution in their bank account or reinvested. Yeah, it could be two weeks, three weeks in some cases before the cash actually comes out and your portfolio is is adjusted accordingly. Yeah. And then the other part is <clears throat> you have to lodge your tax return to get the frame credit or the benefit of the frame credit. So it actually is let, sometimes it, it mm. falls more than the dividend you see in the bank account. Yeah. yeah. And it can feel a bit overwhelming when you if you've invested for the first time and you've received a distribution in the last 12 months and we get to the end of financial year and you're doing your tax return as an investor for the first time, there's a lot of different components here. What are the key ones we need to know about? And yeah, there's a few, even I. <laughs> your tax advisor, <laughs> I can't remember. Uh, I mean, the one big good thing is that there's a tax return label. So it tells you what area of your yeah. tax return you're going to put it in. But the biggest one, so this is the ASX 200, naturally benefits from franking credits. So, so franked, there's a spot yeah. for that in your ATO tax return? Exactly. So frank distributions and then, so there's two types. It'd be frank distributions uh, and unfrank distributions. So where there's no frank credit attached. And the big ones here would be your frank distributions comes on the second line. And mm -hmm. then just below that, your share of frank credits from those frank dividends. They'd probably be the, the two most important ones. And as we probably, I think we discussed a few weeks back, both of those go into your taxable income and one of them being mm. frank credits comes off the tax at the end. Mm -hmm. um, then you, there's quite a lot in here, so yeah. you're always testing it. <laughs> there's often foreign income. Yeah. Foreign income's a big one you get from ETFs, not this ETF, because like a, it's an Australian ETF. Yeah. There's a li I think there might be a little accessible foreign source income. So in this one, uh, probably is that 10% or less, about 10%. Mm -hmm. uh, maybe that, it could be because you've off. got, you, you've um, got um, just CSL. Yes, you'll have um, ResMed, you'll block. have. Yep. Square payments. So companies that are listed in Australia but domiciled overseas may have some foreign income included in that distribution. But again, it's just another part of your tax return. We have to disclose that. Yeah. Yeah. So all of the numbers that you see on this document, so there's the, the dollar value in the far column, but then there's a middle column that has letters and numbers. So I think 13C, for example, is that the reason that these are on your statement is that you take that number and you apply it when you do your tax, if you do it yourself, and it has like a field for 13C. Yeah. The key thing to remember, though, is that you'll get one of these statements. If you own multiple ETFs, you'll get multiple statements. So you need to add them all up. You can't just put this one in and then, you know, you have to add them all up. So, yeah. And the ATO has some great 
guides that you can download for individual investors that actually take you through all of this stuff. So I'll link them in the show notes. And we also have some upcoming tax episodes that'll be helpful as well, because if it's your first time investing and you're doing your tax return as an investor for the first time, which is really exciting, there's a few extra things you'll need to think about. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So then the second interesting part would be the capital gains, which is longer than the Australian income, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, and that's because they split it into discounted capital gains. So if the company's been held for over 12 months. Inside the ETF? Exactly. Yep. Or a port, and generally a portion of every company would have been held for 12 months, but maybe yeah. not all of it. Because the and ETF's constantly buying and selling within itself. Exactly. Yeah. And it could, yeah, so 70% of the holding might have been held for 12 months, but I wouldn't want to be doing be... that ETF's <laughs> tax return. <laughs> oh, yeah. Figuring yeah. all that out. Thank heavens they're automated. And that's important because it's, uh, it's, also determines what losses you can use to offset. So only short-term losses can offset short-term gains and only long-term losses can offset long-term capital gains. Yep. All right. Well, we'll have some resources in the show notes. Stay tuned for more tax episodes so this makes a bit more sense or just give it to your accountant, which is what I do. (laughs) (laughs) Just send it all across. And we have... I'm looking through the rearview mirror of that, uh, <laughs> that tax statement now. All right. Thank the you for next <laughs> question is from Garden Addict. Oh. I've never had good money habits and I've tried everything from reading Rich Dad Poor Dad and the Barefoot Investor. I'm 40 years old. I'm in a heap of debt. I'm trying really hard and I've had financial counseling from a charity during COVID and after redundancy and I really need some direction. Thanks for your honesty. That's really good. Garden Addict. Um, this is very common. Credi- yeah. You say, do we better say credit to you? No, incredibly difficult. Oh, okay. Uh, and too common, I think. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And at 40 years, 40 odd years old, <laughs> um, and in a heap of debt, well, a lot of people do find themselves in this situation and that is completely, I mean, it's not okay, but it's completely reasonable that you would end up in this situation. So the next day of your life begins today and- what we can do is we can help you in multiple ways. Obviously, you keep listening to this podcast. You are doing the right thing. Secondly, um, I'm not sure, Kate, if this episode will air before or after our recent discussion of the Ramit Sethi show on Netflix. Probably before. Probably before. Okay. So, upcoming, potentially, there's an episode that you should listen to. It's um, it's a bit of a cheeky title, like how to- What is it? Uh, how to Get Rich. How to Get it's Rich. It's a Netflix TV show. And it's available on Netflix. Uh, it's wonderful- and you can discover all of the habits that people fall into, the limiting beliefs. And the reason that we say this, right, is because we could give you a strategy. We could say, save 20% of your income once you've used that 20% to pay off your debt, renegotiate with your bank, um, consolidate your loans. And we give you all this stuff and we'll say, this is the strategy. And then in a year from now, you end up in the same situation. And the reason that you do is because you focus on the strategy and not the actual core problem here which is probably an insecurity about money. It's probably a feeling of, I don't know enough. I'm not wealthy enough. I'm not smart enough. What we call a limiting money belief. To get to that, you have to understand yourself. And one of the things would be really um, important to consider right now is don't compare yourself to other people. That's, to me guys, that's become apparent just from this, like these three sentences. Is you're, sa- you're putting your age and you're saying, I'm in a lot of debt and it, I'm kind of, you're kind of saying that you're not good enough, but you definitely are good enough because you're listening to this podcast, you're asking a question and you're extending an olive branch. So go to, from now and focus on those things, I would say, is focus on yourself, 
um, keep listening to the podcast and just tackle one thing at a time. And I think the system isn't particularly well set up as well. Like there's a lot of predatory credit providers mm. yep. around, which are difficult to navigate. And that's why I found your, you know, you, the work you two do is incredibly valuable because you're finding trusted sources of information, whether it's on the financial counselling or, mm. you know, helping find credit providers that are that are you know, will uh, more interested in helping rather than putting people into more debt, essentially. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, and the, the National Debt Helpline and the Free Financial Counselling Services is a fantastic resource that I know needs yeah. more more funding, but it is a great resource that's available to you. It's confidential. You may be able to talk to your bank's hardship teams. You may be able to talk to your lender's hardship teams and look at what options you have. I mean, start writing down what small actions you want to take each day to improve your financial situation and just know that you're not alone and maybe it, you do need to find someone in your life or someone in a similar situation mm-hmm. or someone a few steps ahead of you on the debt paying off journey just to help encourage you because it can be a long journey and it can feel quite lonely during that journey. And so how can you find someone to help keep you accountable but also support you during this? Yeah, we. Um, if you've read Barefoot Investor, I can't say the same about Richard Porto, but if you've read Barefoot Investor, it's a fantastic book, teaches you all of the essentials of money management. But clearly there's something missing. There's a relationship or a link that's missing here. So potentially this is joining a group like a Facebook group, a Reddit community, um, obviously understanding that everyone else has their own biases and their own yeah. whatever. And on Instagram, there's a big debt-free community, debt-free community. that share yeah. their journey. And sometimes just watching that of someone else going, all right, I've got $50,000 of debt. It's going to take me five years to pay off. This is my plan. And just watching along because you can see that other people are in this doing it with me. Yeah. I'd say the best thing, garden addict, for what you do, need to do now, if you like spending time in the garden, is sit down and just write out all the things that you love doing. Like literally just write down all the things you love doing, how you want to spend your time going forward um, because that will help you remember when you go to spend or when you go to take on debt, is this moving me towards that thing which I love or is it moving me further away? Obviously, if it's debt, it's moving you further away. If it's spending, it's moving you further away unless it's spending on gardening tools, which might be something that you love doing. Um, But unless you have that North Star that thing that you're going for, the rest of it doesn't work. So Drew, in Drew's um, language, it would be you know goal setting and yeah. that type of thing. In our language, it might be like, why do you get up every day and what kind of life do you want to live? Uh, so that is where I'd focus first and foremost. That was one of Morgan Housel's rules too. What is it? No, the, what are the rules of the game you're playing? Or the, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And... Yeah, I mean that's that's at the end of the day that's essential because a lot of people are stuck in the process of day to day. They think a strategy can help. There is no one strategy that solves the problem. That's why everyone is unique, um, and we need to find strategies that fit that uniqueness, not the other way around. Um, so you're on the right track. That's great, and thank you for sharing. All right, now Drew and Owen, I'm going to leave you for a few minutes because the final question from our Q and A today is from Hannah, and it's in relation to wills. And I know neither of you are lawyers, so you're probably not going to be much help here. So I'm going to ask Marley Vero, a wills and estate lawyer from Nest Legal, who I've had on the show before, for her thoughts. Marley, can you give me some of the background to online wills? Because I heard during COVID, some people were able to do them digitally, but I'm not really sure what's going on at the moment. Yeah, absolutely. So I guess there's two kinds of online wills, right? So there are the wills that have been drafted by a legal 
practitioner and have been signed electronically. But then you've also got the online wills that people can do for free just on a website, um, put in some information and go from there. Okay, so there's two different uh, types you're mentioning. Can you explain each of them and how they're different? Yeah, absolutely. So the things that you might see on Instagram or um, social media for ads for free or or relatively cheap wills, those are what we classify as an online will, right? And um, I think they're probably a bit better than the DIY wills um, that people scribble on the back of napkins, but they are not made as part of a broader estate planning conversation. So there's no nuance there. There's no um, real discussion of complexities. They are quite problematic if they're not executed properly. And we've seen them gift assets in wills that the person, the testator, didn't actually own, uh, maybe were owned jointly or owned through an entity. So that, um, yeah, while they are sometimes better, than a DIY will, there's still a lot of issues with them. Um, That being said, then you've got your electronically signed wills. So during lockdown and COVID, uh, the Victorian government did introduce a electronic signing um, legislation, which allowed us to electronically witness wills. Um, The problem there is there hasn't been an awful lot of guidance as to how those wills need to be executed to be signed electronically appropriately so we've actually I think at last check there's only been two electronically signed wills probated um, in the Supreme Court of Victoria so a lot of rejections there. Okay so if you got a will done during lockdown and had it digitally witnessed it might be worth revisiting that now with a lawyer to see if you can just maybe reinforce it. Absolutely. And that's that's what we did. We uh, wrote to all of our clients and asked them to, to come back in and, and sign in person. Yeah. And you mentioned the sort of the complexity and how online wills don't take all of that into account. I know that many of the listeners have a range of assets and liabilities and they've got superannuation and they've maybe got life insurance. So there's a lot to consider here, even if you think you don't have many assets per se. Absolutely. Look, I'm of the view that if you're an adult and you've had a job, then you should have a will because you're definitely going to have superannuation and also things like digital assets come into it. I'm sure most of us have a smartphone and you've got a digital asset. Yeah, there's a lot of electronic things we have access to. And I was wondering, because we haven't spoken for a little while on the show and it's been a while since we've spoken about wills, are there any uh, big updates apart from the sort of the signature and the digital signatures during lockdown that listeners should know about? Um, The main update would be the electronic signing provisions, I would say. So we did have a case um, in the Supreme Court. It uh, was called Re Curtis and that was sort of our landmark ruling on electronic execution of wills and has sort of been our guiding light on, um, you know, how to get them done properly. We honestly just prefer to do it in person. We make sure that it's signed correctly. Um, but, yeah, that that case was was a really big one. That was uh, last year, October no, last year. Yeah, I remember I've spoken to a couple of lawyers about wills on the podcast now and they say that's often the area where people go wrong with those electronic will kits or DIY because, they have quite strict requirements for how they're 
they're witnessed and signed and all that sort of stuff. And sometimes individuals on their own don't fulfill all of the requirements, which makes it complicated when you pass away. Absolutely. If they're not executed properly, then the court often asks, they ask a lot of questions. Um, They ask questions if not all the pages have been signed. They ask questions if the witnesses haven't all used the same pen. So, especially if you've drafted your will a number of years ago, sometimes you're um, running around trying to find the details of someone who worked in a pharmacy 20 years ago that witnessed a will. Um, So, yeah, important to get it right the first time. And where do you see the the future of wills going? Because whenever I I think about it, it seems so old school that this has to be done with multiple people and pen and paper and, like, is artificial intelligence, is technology going to evolve the way we we have wills? I think it definitely will. I think we will see more and more electronically signed wills. The electronic signing legislation otherwise is fantastic. I have witnessed affidavits for people in South Africa before over Zoom, which is really cool. But for uh, estate planning in particular, I mean, AI, I mean, chat GPT could write you a will, right? As long as you followed the provisions in the Wills Act and got it signed correctly, there's no reason why that couldn't be probated. But that being said, there is no expertise there. There's no nuance. It hasn't been made as part of a broader conversation. I think it could be a useful tool for estate planning practitioners, but there still needs to be that human element. Mm, I'm very interested to see the developments here. We've had a few guests recently on the show that have talked about artificial intelligence and how it applies to different things and how it might change our jobs in the future. But Marley, There's a lot of people listening that probably do have a will, some people listening that maybe need to update it, and there'll be other people listening to me right now going, "Uh, yeah, I've had it on my to-do list for a few years now, but I haven't quite uh, moved it to the top. What would you say to them? I would say that it's the kindest thing you can do for the people that you leave behind is to have all of that in place. And an estate plan is so much more than just a will. It's your will, it's your powers of attorney, and it's um, instructions for your executor. So think about you know, who, who is your insurance through? Who is your super with? Who are you banking with? That's all information that is going to help your loved ones when the inevitable happens. Um, and your digital assets register as well. Super important. Wonderful. Thanks, Marley, for helping answer this listener question. Check your will. Make sure it's updated. If you got it digitally signed during COVID, maybe it's time to speak to your lawyer and make sure everything is dotted and crossed. All right. Wonderful. Well, I think it's time to wrap this Q&A up. Owen, Drew? Thank you for having us, Kate. Thank you for having us. (laughs) I invited you into my studio. (laughs) I know you take it as a risk every time. (laughs) You two are liabilities. So, if you want to find out more about Drew and the team at Water Partners, there's a link in your show notes. Just click that. Um, it has some more information there. Drew is also available on Twitter. He's very active. Not really. but um, <laughs> Actively can- tagged by you. <laughs> Actively tagged in all of the, the other silly things. But, We're doing um, a bit of a brand refresh and new website coming up soon. Too. New website coming soon. You heard it here first. And merch. Well, if you're looking merch. for something exciting in the next coming. month. Some hoodies and hats. Oh, well, oh really? Are you going to come with some for a giveaway in the next Q&A? Definitely. We'll buy Can you get flat lot. peak caps? Like yep. yellow flat peak caps with, say, wattle on them? Yeah. Frank Green done. branded. Embroidered, though. Flasks. Frank Green. What else you got for mugs, us? Mugs, maybe some bottle seed biscuits, anything well, oh, yellow. No. Is that high carb? <laughs> Doesn't All right. have to be. All right. So, <laughs> stick around for next month's Q&A. 
hopefully yes. Drew will come with some goodies so we can do a giveaway. Uh, send us questions for future Q&As via the link in the show notes. And if this podcast has made you think about, hey, I want to learn a bit more about my finances and how I manage my money, we have heaps of free courses on Rask Education yes. that you can go for your life there. Right. Well, that was heaps of fun. Um, thanks for putting up for us if, uh, with us if you got through this far in the podcast. Drew, thanks for joining us. It's good to see you. And right. Kate, as always, thanks for joining me. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Australian Finance Podcast. We hope you learned something new and were able to take one thing away from this episode. If you're keen to learn more, head on over to Rask Education and take one of our free money and investing courses. You could even become a Rask Core member for less than your Netflix subscription each month. And don't forget to subscribe for new episodes in your inbox every week. Plus, if you enjoyed the show, we'd love you to leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and send any questions our way via the link in the description. And before we go on, did this podcast contain personal financial advice just for me? Absolutely not, Kate. Our podcast actually contains general financial information only. What that means is the information does not take into account your financial needs, goals, objectives, or even your situation. So because of that, it's important that you consider if the information is appropriate to you and your needs before acting on it. If that all sounds a bit confusing or you're still working out what your needs are, it's a great idea to consult a licensed and trusted financial planner. And don't forget to do your own research. Are you thinking about starting your wealth creating journey, but not sure where to put your hard earned dollars? InvestSmart can help. InvestSmart offers a free quiz that makes it easy to find the right InvestSmart ETF portfolio to help you reach your goals. Just visit investsmart.com.au and hit get started. Answer a few simple questions about your goals and how much you want to invest and you'll get a tailored statement of advice with a portfolio recommendation. You can visit investsmart.com.au for a no obligations free statement of advice. This ad is brought to you by InvestSmart Advice, AFSL 334107. For more than a decade, I've been hunting for the best investors and their methods, strategies, and tools for investing. After years in the industry, countless books, a few degrees, and 1,000 podcasts and live shows, I've rolled this accumulated knowledge into something called Rask Invest. If you've ever heard me talk about a core and a satellite, active and passive, true long-term compounding, or you simply want to know exactly how I would invest, now is your chance. Rask Invest is our new investment service, designed for all types of investors who want professional management of their core portfolio at a low cost from a team they trust. Rask Invest helps you automate your wealth creation and passive income. Simply click the link that says invest with Owen in your podcast player to join one of our live platform walkthroughs or book a call with us. You can also view the Rask Invest PDS and TMD and get invested with me.